So again, just to recap what we've covered very well now is that this book is all about the superiority of the revelation uh, and the ministry that comes through Jesus Christ. That in times past, the revelation came by various means, a uh, little bit here, a little bit there. As, I, as I've said in the previous sessions, there were prophets who had long ministries, prophets who had short ministries, prophets who received their revelation in dreams, uh, prophets who received their revelation in visions, prophecy who received their uh, revelation through the direct mediation of angels, the, uh, and all of those were, were in bits and pieces. But with the coming of the Messiah, the full and final revelation has come through Jesus Christ. And as I've said before, as Hebrews chapter 1 clearly testifies, God has nothing more to say to mankind. What he has to say to mankind, he has finally and fully spoken through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is different than the prophets, uh, aside from the fact of his dual nature, but he is the very logos, the very divine intellect of God, and thus he is the, the reservoir and the source of the entire revelation that comes from God. So the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews is that though God in the past worked through men and spoke to men through men, what he has finally said is of much greater importance, and the ministry that he has given to the Son is so much better than the ministry of men. And as we've been looking in uh, the last couple of weeks, the ministry of angels. We're going to take a little bit deeper look in that uh, tonight. And I want to do that because I want us to appreciate, it's hard for us to appreciate just what a struggle this was for Messianic Jews who, were, who, were, who had embraced Christ at the time, that this was, this was indeed a struggle for them. Anyway, so there's a, a, a quote there out of Acts chapter 17 that really reemphasizes the fact uh, that uh, this is it now. Um, what God has given through his son is full and it's final and men will be held accountable for it. So in Acts chapter 17 verses 25 to 31 we read, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given us assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So there we read that the times of ignorance that God overlooked, and that word overlooked means uh, kind of winked at or passed over, and that word ignorant means want of knowledge or understanding. So because of the finality of the revelation from God and the person through whom it comes, he's done looking the other way, and he's done overlooking things. Come on in, guys. And Okay. Um, does anyone need notes? Maybe somebody can take these notes and pass them out to, to those who come in. Okay, so God is done looking the other way, and now uh, all men everywhere are commanded to repent and to turn to the Son. Okay, over on the next page, page two. Any questions thus far? So, so... Um, I'm not going to rehash what I've said over the last over the prior weeks. The videotapes are, the tapes are up there on YouTube. If you haven't seen them, or if you've missed the session, I want to recommend you go and view them, um, because it will help you to catch up to where we are 
we dealt with chapter one over the last three weeks with with the author of Hebrews having to demonstrate to the Jews because of their affinity and, and uh, almost vener, vener, semi-veneration of angels, how difficult it was for them to accept that the revelation that came through Christ, even though they recognized him as Messiah, was, was difficult for them to accept, was, was superior to and superseded the revelation that they received through angels. We're going to look at that uh, a little bit more here in just a few minutes. So, so the very fact that some in the church thought angels to be superior to Christ was, ser- was of serious concern to the writer because it caused them to question their, claim, their claims to faith. Saving faith requires an acceptance of Jesus as Lord. Now, you'll also remember, I've said this several times over the last several weeks, that the Jewish concept of the Messiah, they believed that, that Messiah would be, that he would be a direct descendant of David, but they also believed that he would be fully human, and they also believed to this day that in any given generation there is a person that can that can stand, that can have the Spirit of God come upon them, and they can be the Messiah, right? And so this adds to the difficulty uh, that some of some of the Messianic Jews of the age of this age were struggling with. So saving faith requires an acceptance of Jesus as Lord, and this concern leads the writer to the first of five important warnings issued to the readers. In fact, the letter can be divided into five sections, each leading up to a warning to the reader. And so you'll see, you'll see the author of Hebrews as we work through the books. He moves from exposition, so, so he'll, he will... Uh, as he as he moves through the three pillars of Judaism, angels, Moses, and the priesthood, he will one section will be an exposition, and he'll give the exposition referring back to the Hebrew scriptures that they would be very familiar with, and then when he makes his point, then he would move into consequently, therefore, an exhortation on how they were to adjust their beliefs and adjust their practices where needed. Okay, so. The writer issues warnings to stir his audience to action because he's concerned over things that they are thinking and doing. All five warnings work to correct an aspect of Christian doctrine or duty. His first warning addresses the first and most important issue of Christian doctrine, and that is Christology. That is, who is Christ? The warning is naturally, naturally that of the need to receive him for salvation. Okay. So here's where, uh, you know, I want to flip around a little bit because we're, we're on kind of the horns of a dilemma or of a conundrum here. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Exodus chapter 20. So let's go to Exodus chapter 20 for a moment. The very familiar passage passage of the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we read, And God spoke all these words, saying... Okay, so here's a question. Here's a question for you guys. Is everybody there at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1? The words that were spoken that go to make up the... what we know as the Ten Commandments, who spoke those words? It's, yeah, it's not, the answer is right there in verse 1. God spoke all those words. Okay, now jump over to Exodus chapter 24. Now in Exodus chapter 24, notice, uh, I'll, I'll read down to verse 4 from verse 1. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nabab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come up near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor nor shall they go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, 
all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, so who spoke all the words that Moses wrote? God. Okay, all right. Now drop down to verse 12, and let's see what it says on verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So who wrote the law on the tablets of stone? Okay. Now jump up to Exodus chapter 32. Now this is the incident, this is just context, the incident of the golden calf and all that that's going on. But notice what it says in verse 16. Well, I'll read verse 15 too, just so we have a little bit of context. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other, on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Okay, so who, again, now we have a, another, another two verses that tell us who was the one who actually made the engraving on the tablets? God. Okay, now jump up to Exodus chapter 34. And look at, notice what it says in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, now this was after he had smashed, Moses had smashed the first tablets, right? He got angry and he just smashed them and all that. Now notice what it says in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Okay, so who wrote on the second set of tablets after the first ones were smashed? Okay, good. So we're all agreed thus far that God played a primary role in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Do you all agree? Okay, now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, I'll read verses 1, but I want to point you to Deuteronomy 33, <clears throat> Excuse me. We read, now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, the Lord came down from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with tens thousands of his saints from his right hand, came a fiery law for them. So this is referring to the same event only later on. But now... If you look at the Hebrew, there the King James translators translated it as saints, but actually the Hebrew word means holy ones. So it can mean it can mean some other group, and I don't think it means saints. It, the simple meaning is holy ones. And uh, I, I think what it's referring to is angels. And that seems to be supported by Psalm 68, verse 17. So turn for a moment to Psalm 68, verse 17. <clears throat> now I'll read the verse and you tell me what this makes you think of when you hear the verse. If you're relatively familiar with some of the major events of the Old Testament. In verse 17 of Psalm 68, we read, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands, 
The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. So when you think of the chariots of God, what, what, what comes to mind? Where have you heard that before or read? Yes, the chariots of fire that was scary. Go ahead, Doug. Yes, right? So that seems to support the conclusion that what Psalm Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 is referring to is thousands upon thousands of angels. Okay, all right. So we have that. All right, so now let's go into the New Testament to the book of Acts chapter, and let's turn to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, now we have Stephen's address, right? And he starts right from Abraham and moves forward. But look at what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us. So here in Acts chapter 8, 7 verse 38, we're told that Moses received the oracles from this angel, from the angel, which we, which we have surmised in the past is the angel of the Lord, right? The angel of the Lord was who? The pre a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. But there's another wrinkle to that, okay? Notice what it says in verse 53. Well, let me start at verse 52 so we have context. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, who received the law by the what? direction of angels there is plural and not kept it well so I looked at that and I said well you know they may that may be referring to different different directives given by the Lord through the prophets right so angels you know we know we know an angel appeared to Daniel and you know we know there was an encounter between between angels and Zechariah we know the so there was a whole bunch of them. So I'm saying, well, that, that could refer to that. But we have to look at what it says in Galatians chapter 3. So let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, notice what it says in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of the transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through what? Angels. There's a plural there. By the hand of a mediator. So there is, so there is evidently substantial proof when you search through all the passages of scripture that that the law was somehow mediated from God through angels through the angel of the Lord to Moses on Mount Sinai yeah but what it does is it illustrates to us why this would be such a difficult thing for the messianic Jews to deal with Right, because there is some validity to to what they were holding to. Because we see there that angels in a couple passages is used in the plural as being present on Mount Sinai, and we have those verses that talk about thousands of thousands of the holy ones and their chariots being on Mount Sinai. Yes. Sixty was 68 to 70 A.D. There's still witnesses alive. There's still witnesses alive. 
sure, that's plausible. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there there arose a generation who knew not the, you know, the works and the wonders of the Lord. Yeah. So the the point the the reason why I wanted you to see this is because it's it's not that they were, you know, though they were the more liberal wing of Judaism, right? And they they favored, as a matter of fact, you know that in Deuteronomy chapter thirty three verse two where it says the Lord came down with 10,000s of his saints. Actually, the Greek Septuagint translates it, they came down, he came down with 10,000s of his angels, right? And that is, and that is, the, that is the, the Old Testament translation that Hellenistic Jews read and observed. So the, the reason why I wanted to take us through this is for us to, because it's hard for us to, you know, see, we're, and it's hard, <laughs> it's hard not to, to sit in judgment on them, right? Um, because we have the benefit of knowing kind of the whole story up to this point anyway. So it's hard for us to, to fathom how they would struggle with the revelation of Christ and, and what he spoke in the New Testament as, as it's recorded in the gospel as being superior to the revelation given through the mediation of angels, which the scriptures clearly attest to that, right? So I, I wanted you to see that. All right. So on uh, page two of the notes, starting at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Oh, let me get back in Hebrews in my Bible. All right. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Okay, so there were a couple of words there that I asked you to, to kind of dig out in your concordance. I think, the, I think the first couple were earnest heed. Did anybody do it? Megan, what'd you come up with? What does earnest mean? Let's let's take it one word at a time. Earnest. <coughs> Resulting from or showing sincere. Okay, Doug. Okay, all right. Anybody else look up the word earnest? Nancy? More abundantly, right? So it's, you know, it, and, I, and I think that this is a, a disease of apathy that's come upon the church today, is that we don't seem to be earnest about searching God's word. You know, it's not high on our list of priorities. Okay, so so we must be, let me read the phrase again, more earnest heed. Now, what does the word heed mean away? What did you come up with there? Heed. Pay attention, right? So that is really, so we have to be really earnest. What is the phrase that you use for earnest, Doug? Beyond, far more, beyond what's ordinary or, ex or expected. And Nancy used the term abundant. Pay attention to those things. We have heard, lest we drift away. Now here's the other phrase that I asked you to look up, drift away. So what did you come up with for drift away? Megan? Okay. Yes, a continuous slow movement from one place to another. Nancy? Flowing water. Good. Anybody else look it up? Doug? 
drifting without anchorage. And it's so, so what you get there is the clear sense that it's not something that happens all at once, but it's very subtle and it's progressive. So what the author of Hebrews is saying here, therefore, therefore means on the basis of what he has said before, based upon the fact that the revelation of the Son, who is both human and divine, is far superior to angels, then we must more abundantly, more zealously pay attention to the things we have heard because there is a danger that if we don't, outside the sphere of our apprehension, outside the sphere of our um, knowledge, of our sensing, we may start to drift away slowly, right? So, so, this, is, so this is a thing, and, and, that, and you're right, that's a nautical term there. And so it, what, you know, what it actually refers to it is a ship that is anchored, and it begins, and what happens is the ship, when a ship starts to drag its anchor, the ship starts to move very slowly, and it's outside the perception of the person who, the people who are on the ship, right? So now, if, if you're a boater, you know this, that if you have a chart, something called a chart plotter, and a GPS, they have this thing on there that's called an anchor alarm. So you put your anchor down, and then on the chart plotter, you set at what, at what number of feet of drift do you want it to set the alarm? Because there's no way unless you're, you know, you're doing dead reckoning, you're looking at two different landmarks, that you're going to know that the, shift is, the ship is slowly starting to drift off course. This is what the author is saying to the, Hebrew, to the Hebrew Messianic Jews and by extension to us. We need to pay attention to everything that Christ has said. We need to be diligent. We need to be earnest. We need to be zealous because if we are not, what we're in danger of is slowly drifting away and it happens without our noticing it. Now think for a moment. Think about some of the, you know, the, the big no-nos that we have recorded in the Old Testament. Let's talk for a moment about David and Bathsheba. Was that an all-at-once departure or was it a slow drift? It was a slow drift, right? If you, if you go back and read... David sent his armies to war, and he stayed back at the castle, but it was customary for the leader to always accompany the troops into battle, or at least in the vicinity. Had David done that, the whole issue with Bathsheba would not have happened, right? So we need to be careful. Okay, so now to reiterate that, to emphasize that even more, he goes on and says in verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Okay, so now uh, we're over on page. You can read that, but I just want to jump over to, okay, let's jump over to page five. And there you'll see I have the uh, the verse under part B. <clears throat> so the children of Israel will held accountable for every speck of communication that God gave to them through the angels and messengers that he sent. So um, what is the word? Did anyone look up the word steadfast there in verse 2? Steadfast. Okay. Does anyone have a Joe? Okay. Steadfast could not be altered or amended. The word spoken through angels refers to the law of Moses delivered by angels and part of the old covenant. Now, let's look at some things here starting back in, in Leviticus. So turn to Leviticus chapter 4. 
So again, just to read that verse. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So Leviticus chapter 4, notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which, which ought not to be done, and does any of them, so, so there he's talking about unintentional sins on behalf of any person who breaks any of the commandments of, of the Lord. Now drop down to verse 13. Verse 13 we read, Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of the meeting. So the offering for the first two were only for sins that were what? Unintentional. Okay, now drop down to verse 22. When a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God, in anything which should not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goat, a male without blemish. So now we have a king who sins what? Unintentionally. And then verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. Okay, so everything we looked at this far deals with what type of sin? Unintentionally committed sins. So, so number one, if the perpetrator does not know he's committing sin, is it still sin or is it not sin? It's still sin, right? But notice there was no offering. First of all, there was no offering for sins committed intentionally. Now, let me ask you this question. The offerings that were provided for unintentional sins, would they remove the eternal penalty for sinning? The unintentional, we know there are offerings for unintentional sins, right? In our thinking, unintentional sins are less severe than intentional sins, right? So the offerings that we just read about that were provided for unintentional sins, would those offerings remove the eternal penalty for those sins that were committed unintentionally? No, they would not. They would only deal with keeping the covenant relationship in place. Members of the covenant community. Okay? There was, there was no, no exit clause from that. So the point being is that every transgression, it reemphasizes, it kind of brings context to, to, the, uh, to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, that every transgression received a just reward. There was, that, there was no wiggle room. You messed up, you messed up. And we know that the covenant was a national covenant. Everyone who said yes, and, and, and they were warned, look, you're not only saying yes for yourself who are here, but you're saying yes for everyone that comes after you too. That you have to do all the, all of you are covenanting with me to do all the commandments of the Lord. If you do all the commandments of the Lord, then all of these blessings will flow to you. All of them, every single one, every single person, every single time. 
if you miss so much as one of them, all of these curses will come upon you. Right? That was the deal that they made. Life and death. And, and God did not let them off the hook for that. Okay. Now, so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about because, <clears throat> because angels were messengers, and, and the basic meaning of the term angels, as it's written in, in the New Testament, is messenger. So I was thinking, well, there, there were not only angelic messengers in the Old Testament, but there were also human messengers in the Old Testament. What kind of account were they held to the same accountability even though the message was mediated through men, such as prophets, rather than angels? So that got me thinking about Saul, King Saul, right? So that's when I asked, you know, for the poll question, is did you, do you believe that Saul was a believer or an unbeliever? And that, you know what, you're going to find there really is no definitive answer on that, right? And so, and so when you scan all of the views that are out there, you'll find they come down on both sides of that. So I wrestled with this, and, and personally, I come down on the side that I believe he was saved. I believe he was a believer. I believe he was a believer, um, and but the the point of that this is not to go into a a debate or a discussion of what Saul was at the heart of it, but the point being is to see the severity with which God visited him with justice on his disobeying, right? So, so. He reigned for 40 years, right? So the first two years apparently were uneventful. Two years into his rule was when he was told to wait till Samuel came down after seven days to officiate the sacrifice, and then he would go into battle and be victorious. But Saul, on the seventh day, was kind of worried that Samuel wasn't going to show up, so he took matters into his own hand, and he performed the sacrifice. And right after that, Samuel strolls into the camp, right? So Samuel strolls into the camp, and as a result of that, God, God visited through to Saul, through the prophet Samuel, that because of his disobedience, the rule of his family would not be dynastic so he lost the family the family dynasty ended as a result of that disobedience now Saul was Saul was a Benjamite so we know that you know as it says in Genesis I think it's 49 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah that the kingship was always to be from the tribe of Judah, but the dynasty was lost. Okay, so now things move along, and now 25 years into his reign, so now we're talking, you know, we're talking uh, 25, 23 years later is when the whole incident with King Agag occurred, right? So he was told to go into that town, and they were to kill every living thing. Right? Every living thing. So what happens? Saul goes in and, and they capture the king and keep him alive. And they, they all of they took booty, you know, the sheep, this and that. And so, of course, Samuel strolls into the camp and Saul is saying, Blessed be you of the Lord. I have performed the Lord's will. And Samuel goes, well, what is that bleeding of sheep that I hear then? You know? So as a result of that disobedience, his kingship was removed from him. So at the first disobedience, the dynastic, the, the possibility of a, a Saul or a Benjamite dynasty was removed. As a result of the second disobedience, his kingship was removed. And so right there, you see right within a chapter or two, 
that the spirit of that's when God told Samuel to go to the sons of Jesse and I will point out to you who's going to be the king my next king and so you know the story and David gets anointed with oil at that point the spirit of God comes off of Saul and goes on to David but what happens to Saul now God visits a spirit an evil spirit upon Saul from that point on so look at the severity and and Saul just continually spiraled downhill into madness of that of that but when you look at the 40-year reign of Saul we tend to look at Saul and say oh my god what a horrible man he was but if you take the, the category of sins that we have recorded um, so pride is anyone here guilty of pride go ahead yeah, is anyone here guilty of envy? We see he was really envious of David and a couple times tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. Right? Is anyone here ever guilty of envy? Well, he, uh, he was guilty of murdering the, I think it was 85 priests. Right? But what does, Jesus what does Jesus say about murder in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount? What does he say about that? Yeah, right? So, so I believe he was saved, most especially because of the song of the bow in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And you see, you'll see that when Saul lost his kingship, when God removed his kingship from him, Samuel did what? He mourned. When Saul, when word got back to David that Saul and Jonathan fell in battle, what did he do? He mourned. And he composed this song that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 1 called The Song of the Bow as an ode to Jonathan and Saul. What's the point? The point is not to digress into a debate about whether Saul was, believed, was, was a believer or not. The point emphasizes what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse I can't read verse verse 2 for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. So look at the severity with which God executed justice on those who broke the law that was mediated through angels, given on Mount Sinai, the 613 commandments. There were offerings only for unintentional sins, and those offerings did not remove the penalty, the eternal penalty for unintentional sin. They only allowed the person who had committed them to maintain the covenant relationship with the covenant community. It did nothing to deal with the eternal penalty. And then look at the lives of Saul. Look at David's transgression with, with Bathsheba. Look at what happened to the child. Very severe. So the author is saying, look, the revelation that comes through Christ is, is much is a higher revelation because it's the full full and final revelation. And if God didn't let that kind of stuff slip, he's certainly not going to let the stuff slip as it pertains to what has been given to us by the Son. Doug, you had something you wanted to say? You're not going into the Holy Land. Good point. Good one. And then the Old Testament is full of those things. How about, you know, 
you know, and so I, so I, I said, well, you know, I need to see. So I said, let me go look in Hebrews chapter 11 to see if Saul is named there. If he's in Hebrews chapter 11 in Faith's Hall of Fame, then he's definitely a believer, right? He's not there. But you know what? Neither is Solomon. Neither is Jonathan, right? And so the point being is that the author there in Hebrews chapter 11 walks, walks them through the different periods in Jewish history. Abraham, Moses, the judges, the prophets, you know, and he, he walks them through that way. So the point, no, David is in there, I think. Uh, but, but Solomon isn't in there. And Jonathan, there's no doubt in my mind that Jonathan was a believer, right? No doubt whatsoever. He's not in there. So, so the point being is the author is stressing here, look, look at, you have they were familiar with this. You know, we have to look this stuff up in our Bibles, but they knew this stuff. You know, they were familiar. This was their, this is the Old Testament things and the feasts and the sacrifices and, you know, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. That's not part of our heritage, right? We're Gentiles. Our heritage was a pagan heritage. But this is, this is all they've known all their lives. And so they were familiar with them. And the author is saying, look, the revelation that God has fully and finally revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, is superior and supersedes whatever came in bits and pieces. It's the fulfillment of what came in bits and pieces that was mediated through angels, that was mediated through prophets, that was mediated. And so you, can't, you have to pay more abundant attention to it. And then he goes on and said in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, so what is what is the word escape? Did anyone look up that? I think that was a word that I asked you to look up. Escape. Okay. Anyone else? Escape? Doug? Yeah, so so contextually, what is the peril or the threatening circumstance of neglecting so great a salvation? How shall we escape, right? If we neglect, now what does the what did you get for the word neglect? Nancy, no regard. Megan, did you have something? Okay, and Doug? Yep, okay. Not regard. This is what I had for escape, was to flee away. The idea here is that knowing that we've done something wrong, try and get away from God to escape the punishment or the chastisement that we know is coming. And for neglect I had to be, I actually had several components. Number one, to be unconcerned about, right? That's involved in neglecting our salvation. Second thing over on page six is paying too little attention to our salvation. While our, pers while our, while our personal salvation has a point in time beginning, it is a work in progress with things that we must do to cultivate it, to bring it to maturity. Under point C, to leave undone, and point D, to leave unattended. So if we pay little attention to our salvation, that is, we don't make it the number one priority of our lives. If we leave undone in our lives and expression the work of salvation, if we leave unattended the things we ought to be paying attention to concerning our salvation, then we are indicted of neglecting and being careless with our salvation. Yes? So I was kind of musing on this. Um, what is meant by the salvation there? Is it all the tension of salvation? Well, salvation, well, 
So salvation is a, it's a trajectory. Okay? It's a trajectory. So we, we, we express on the basis of regeneration, we are confronted by our sin. We are presented with the gospel. We turn to Christ in faith and repentance. That's, our, that's where our journey begins. But our journey of salvation ends when? At the resurrection, in the resurrection when we receive our new bodies, right? So along that way, there's what we call progressive sanctification, right? And that's something that we are commanded to engage and to participate in. But the author of Hebrews is saying is if you're not being diligent, if it's not the number one priority in your life, because of what God has fully and finally spoken through the, through the Son, if you don't pay attention to it and make it the number one priority in your life, then you're in danger of drifting away. And if the drifting away, by the way, what's another word for drifting away? Apostasy. Apostasy. Apostasizing from the faith. Now, Think back in your life to how many Christians you know, and even to this day you firmly believe they're genuine believers, who started out well, but they didn't do the due diligence in their faith, right? And they slowly began to drift away. And after a certain point of time, their lives are, are, are not discernibly different than the rest of the world. Why did that happen? That happened because... They weren't being due diligent, and God is not kidding around here. You trifle with his son and his sacrifice and the revelation that came through his son. You are, if you are a child of God, and, and you know what? Salvation is by grace. But that doesn't mean that God won't chastise you and discipline you as, a, as his child. You can actually count on it to get you back on track, back on course. And if we for a moment, entertain the idea that Saul was a believer. Look at what God did to him. And if Saul was a believer, that also answers the question of what God will allow in the case of one of his children to discipline them. The visiting of evil spirits, right? Which is also attested to in various places in the New Testament that is not only a possibility, but a reality in the lives of some disobedient believers. We, we, we know of two who were, who were delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, right? Hymenaeus and Philetus. And then it talks in 2 Timothy about how we should, we should approach someone who has been taken captive by the devil, who's so deceived that they think they're doing God's will while they're actually doing the devil's will in the church. Right. So this is a serious thing with God. So there is no escape. So the greatness of the salvation. So this brings swift chastisement and the retribution of God because its cost was the shed blood of his son. Right. Well, how is it that you can understand what was the price that was paid so that you have the potential you have the ability to read those words on the page and to understand them at a level beyond the superficial reading of them. Because the natural man, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, does not have that ability. What was the price that was paid so that you as a child of God would have that ability? It was the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And God forbid that even as his children, if we trifle with that and don't pay attention, don't pay due diligence, earnest heed, that we don't neglect that salvation. Because if we do, the danger is, and it's probably part of the chastisement of God, is that he will allow us to drift away until we hit the wall what I call it, 
Over my life, that's happened to me a couple times. I've hit the wall. God will, if necessary, run you into a brick wall at 50 miles an hour to get you to wake up. I've seen that happen. It's happened in my life a couple times. I've seen it happen in the life of other believers. That's what happens when we don't pay due diligence to what God has provided for us. Okay, that's pretty much it. Look at that, right on time. The rest of it you can read on your own. Any questions? Yes. Yes. No, the peril is the same. The peril is the same, right? Only the circumstance is different, right? We still have we still have that peril of drifting away if we don't pay earnest heed. What's that? No, it's not that we're not believing. If we're not paying attention, we're not paying attention to what God has provided for us, right? So what, so what are the components that, 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 that the Holy Spirit uses to produce growth in the life of one of his children? First and foremost, he uses this, right? This is, I've been studying this book deeply for over 30 years. Every day, I still study two to three hours a day. What's in this book? And there's always something new for me. There's always something that goes, huh? What the heck is that? So, so this, that's, this is, I, I'm telling you, this is the most precious thing on planet Earth right now. It's God's word. It's God's, when you enter, when you, when you open the book, do you realize you were actually dialoguing with God? Do you notice that? You talk to God and God answers back through his word, right? So there's the word. What else is there that's fundamental? Prayer. What else is there? Fellowship with like-minded believers. And there's one more service right so all of that is meant to prepare us for service but we have to serve in the right way with the right motive towards the right direction you can do good works and be a buddhist right and they do many buddhists do better works than christians do but it's it's the direction, right? You do what you do as an act of obedience and worship towards God, the God of the Bible. You do what you do as an expression of worship and devotion because you want to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah, right? So God's word, prayer, fellowship with other like-minded believers, and service, right? Those are the components that are part of the progressive walk of sanctification. And, and God is worth it. And he, it cost him his only begotten son so that we would have that enablement to pursue those things. Yes? Yes. And, and we... And we have that appointment too, to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's got nothing to do with salvation, but it's got everything to do with rewards. In that day, there will be many who will say, I wish I hadn't surrendered that, that, that reward. And so I kind of like look at it this way. I don't know if it's the right way, but it's the way that I've always envisioned it. That at the moment of salvation, God gave me a treasure chest worth of rewards. They're all mine. Purchased to me by my Lord and Savior. And now 
through my acts of disobedience to what I'm supposed to be doing, I start taking pieces of the treasure out of the chest and giving it back to him, giving it back to him. I don't know if that's the way it actually is. That's the way it kind of spurs me in my thinking. I don't want to give anything up that was given to me, right? Okay. All right. So we'll go on and we'll pick it up starting at chapter 5 next week where we'll look at why it was necessary for Christ as the Savior to be made a little bit lower than the angels and we consider on in that theme.